0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensible Plants Podcast, the official podcast of IndefensiblePlants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Before we begin, I just want to say if you like this show and you enjoy listening to it for free, maybe consider supporting it by becoming a patron over at patreon.com/slash IndefensiblePlants. I could not put this podcast out each and every week if it wasn't for the support of my patrons, so consider supporting it today. But this episode is Super exciting because we are talking about butterflies and what it takes to do better by these wonderful little winged beauties. Obviously, butterflies are as tied to plants as they are each other. And what we do with plants and especially the way we manage plants in the built environment really, really matters, especially when you consider the impacts of climate change. Joining us to talk about this is entomologist Dr. Katie Prudick, who engages a lot of community scientists in the process of researching all of the wonderful questions she comes up with. I don't want to take any time away from what she has to say, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Katie Prudick. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Katie Prudick, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. I'm really interested to get your perspective on things. But for those that don't know your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Um, let's see, that's an unloaded question I feel, nice. but um, in this case, as a professor, <laughs> I'm a professor of, of uh, in the wildlife group at the University of Arizona. I study uh, butterfly conservation and management, how uh, how we can make the lives of, of butterflies and other pollinators better, especially in a quickly changing world. So I um, use a variety of data sources, and one of them is uh, community science or citizen science uh, to help inform policy and, and management decisions for uh, butterflies and other insects in both wildlands and urban spaces
0: excellent and where did this all begin for you were were you always kind of like an insect kid flipping over rocks collecting things or did you just love nature and fell into it one way or another
1: no so so my my dad is a scientist he worked for the astrological survey so he took both my sister and i out in the field quite a bit when we were younger um he was a groundwater hydrologist um but both my sister and i ended up in the life sciences field um To those ends, though, I definitely never started out as an entomologist or goals with being an entomologist. I was going to be a marine biologist of all things, too. Uh, Studying large sharks, as it turns out, is really what I wanted to do. But (laughs) then I took my first marine biology class, and I spent most of the class puking over the side of a boat and decided I needed to make some some adjustments to my professional ambitions. So that's what happened. Um, And then I ended up working as an undergrad just Based on happenstance, with a professor who studied butterflies, hmm. uh, Art Shapiro at the University of California, Davis, and he started. I, I would drive him out to his field sites, and and he started to like sort of train me in in you know various entomological perspective taking and techniques and things like that. And uh, it was great. They're a lot easier. Butterflies are a lot easier to put in your pocket than like, great white sharks. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, a little less ornery, less... I guess, would be a good place to start, but.
1: I Among mean, other things,
0: <laughs> I guess the butterflies are pretty lucky that uh, there's not a strong enough dramamine out there to have cured you of your seasickness. So I, I guess,
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure they feel about. That. I think most days they do, but you know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> And that's that's a really fun, uh, you know, I I love talking to people about their backgrounds because it gives every listener a perspective that you never can really plan things in life, especially as it relates to like career or research interests. Sometimes it's just what falls in your lap and circumstance decides for you.
1: Absolutely. This is something that, you know, we talk a lot about with my students and in classes and things like that, um, is that yeah like I, I know very few people who who are actually doing what they planned on doing and usually those people are very early on like their first job mm. right they're like oh i plan to get this job but, but then like life happens and you're just <laughs> sort of always <laughs> i uh, uh, responding in the best possible way I, I got the best advice i think from uh, a professor when i was at yale who gary brewer who i think is retired now and he said katie just make your decisions on whether you think something is interesting challenging and fun and pays the bills and you'll be fine. And I think that's always good advice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love the the sort of ven. where's that nice overlap, but especially being able to feed yourself and keep the lights on is also really nice too.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's always a good thing to optimize.
0: Right on. Right on. But Lepidoptera in general, I mean, beautiful, amazing, fascinating group of insects. I mean, was it, were, were you destined from that point on to, to be in the Lepidoptera world or was it kind of like, well, I could go over here. I kind of like ants, but Lepidoptera stuck out.
1: No, I, 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 you know, I'm like big charismatic me- megafauna, so one has to stay with butterflies. I think that's fair. that's the take-home message. Yeah, <laughs> <Nice>. um, <laughs> the pandas of entomology. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a that's a fair argument yeah. to be made there.
1: Yeah. no, yeah. no. I mean, I, they have beautiful wings and yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, they're fascinating rid- too, right? I mean, there's exactly, nothing- and
1: that's. Yeah, absolutely. Originally, that's how I got into this is that I was interested why they had such beautiful wings like of all the insects like they have these billboards that they fly around with and how does that happen? What are the sort of developmental pathways that lead to that or the the different ways they use to communicate with them Those sorts of things?
0: Very cool. Sounds like you and I had sort of similar interests. I, too, really love sharks and then realized the ocean was not for me. <laughs> but yeah, like really for me, butterflies, specifically the Karner blue butterfly was my gateway into plants. And it's always kind of painted how I look at the botanical world is really the plants themselves are fascinating, but the way they interact with the rest of the world. And you really can't, especially in your world, uh, separate plants and the organisms you study. I mean, they're, you really can't have one no. without the other, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, I think of plants and I do apologize to your audience no and you that um, as snacks, yeah. butterflies i mean that's really what they are in my mind um whether that's nectar and or or fuller or roots
0: yeah that is totally fair and let's be honest that is really what plants kind of function as in the environment they are the food that supports everything else and then those butterflies go on to support a ton of other things in the process but butterflies in and of themselves absolutely amazing organisms really important organisms and yeah, I, I really kind of love the perspective you take on it, especially that element of citizen science, because I think for a lot of other people, as you kind of hinted at, they're really iconic organisms, and they're a great sort of litmus test for what's going on in the environment. Would you argue against that? Of course not. <laughs> Loaded question. <laughs>
1: silly <laughs> I wouldn't be that silly um no I think you're absolutely right like what I love about butterflies you know I mentioned that earlier that like they're easier to put in your pocket than great white sharks but but to those ends they're also very easy for people to to hold and and uh, interact with an animal like a wild animal in in a very safe way I mean the other equivalent would be bees you don't really want to hold those guys most of the time <laughs> no. so you know, the ladies, especially, are a little angry about being held, um, <laughs> and can fight back. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and so, so yeah. No, I think you know they're a great way for people to become more familiar with something that is often foreign, which is insects in general, uh, but also to become more aware of of the natural world and and how another organism moves in that world and what's important to it and how it makes a living and all these things that, you know, we spend our day doing ourselves and what connects us with with the rest of the biosphere.
0: Very nice. And so, you know, when you hear Lepidoptera and science, there are so many different ways you can tackle those two subjects together. You know, there's the morphological route, there's the developmental route, there's the symbiotic route, ecological. So where do you see your career kind of fitting in with the obvious understanding that it's a broad range of things
1: yeah i think at this point I'm, I'm keenly sort of interested in how to take what we know from an ecological perspective from this you know especially plant insect interactions so how do plants and, and butterflies interact with each other in you know local in time space and time and then how that might change moving forward and how we can maintain those interactions as best we can as the world quickly changes um you know, and how do we focus our restoration efforts to optimize those interactions um, and make sure that, you know, both plants and, and butterflies are, are in the same place at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you hear about climate change in the environment, it is usually this particular species is going to be affected in this way. But work like yours is a really sobering and important reminder that you have to kind of figure them in the context of everything else they need, because if one moves and the other one doesn't. That's a recipe for some uh, something interesting on a scientific level, but generally we think of it as not very good either.
1: Yeah, no, from a management perspective and, and sort of um, conservation perspective, certainly not. Uh, yeah, so I think, of, you know, I, I mentioned that plants are snacks, but they, they are core components to butterfly habitat, right? And we want to be able to manage and, and conserve that habitat in ways that are good for the butterflies and good for the plants. Because without the pollinators, I mean... We can, we can you know, talk about how butterflies may or may not be great pollinators, but they are a pollinator, sure. and yeah, and like, I mean, what's good for the butterfly is probably good for the bee or the fly and the coleoptera and the midge or whatever else is pollinating your plant, so.
0: That's a good point to be made, too, and it's not that you only care about butterflies and their snacks. I mean, it is a great poster child for a lot of different things. I mean, the charismatic side of it, but also the... Well, hey, yeah, if we're working on habitat, well, habitat's benefiting a lot of other things in the process. And so where do you as a scientist begin to try to tease out the complexity that is things like climate change and mutualisms and oftentimes dependent ones at that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a slow process <laughs> yeah. and we're trying to scale it up and 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 use sort of different approaches to, to speed that up. Because, again, climate change is not going to wait for us to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in sort of policy and management to apply to ecology, you, you do want to think about there's, there's part of me that wants to know the answer with this and know the amount of uncertainty around mm, that right. answer. But sometimes with management, you just it's like, well, this has got to be good enough because we need to make a decision and we can go back to this later. But right now it's like, you know, these are the four things that we need to prioritize in terms of, of um, next steps. So, so it is, it's always a a process of checking in with Mm -hmm. yourself and being like, is, you know, given the parameter space we're operating in to make sure that this butterfly is going to be around for another 200 to 800 years, is this good enough?
0: Right. Yeah. Right.
1: And it's true. Like, I don't, I wish I could say like a brilliant answer that would like, Pierce through that Gordian knot, but nah, I got nothing.
0: Nah. I mean, if you did, I hope you would have said it a long time ago and you would be untouchable in terms of getting a hold of because you would have all the answers, right? I'd be like, yeah, we're going to
1: Vegas.
0: Yeah, like, dude, I don't have time to talk to you, silly boy, but no. And and yeah, it's it's difficult and, you know, even just saying it as climate change as if it's only the temperature and precipitation levels that matter and, and you know, you look at your work, a lot of stuff has been done in urban centers and, and with climate change comes infrastructure and how the landscape has changed on top of everything else we're doing to it you know and i think historically ecology has shied away from cities as these novel places where not much biology happens but i think it's at least i see a shift in our perspective on urbanized areas and not so much oh my gosh they're actually okay it's it's we can do this better and we can do this in a way that benefits a lot of species that we generally think of as only living in those rural pristine quote-unquote areas
1: Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I think there's another added benefit that probably doesn't get as much promotion as it should, which is that making urban habitats better for butterflies, birds, plants, amphibians, whoever, actually also usually makes it better for humans. Yeah.
0: you know you have
1: less pollution (laughs) right air pollution less water pollution uh greener spaces which help with mental health regulation like seems like a good idea right um and it's one way we can we can start to do that i've been working with a landscape architect lately uh, here at the university of arizona mackenzie waller who you might have to have on your podcast sometime she's super fun sounds awesome um and just thinking about the built environment like how do landscape architects how do architects and design you know how do they think about it what are they what are they optimizing what mm. are they trying to you know draw the human eye to and then and then you know to those ends how do they then draw the insect eye to the same thing right and make it a hospitable place and a beautiful place for for other animals and plants
0: Totally. I love, it. again, those Venn diagram overlaps are where the most interesting things are happening today because, say, they're looking for a specific color or texture just on the landscaping side of things. Then you go, oh, well, hey, here's a nice color and texture that also happens to be native, also happens to support X, Y, and Z. And then it goes from there. You know, we can find right. these overlaps, and you don't necessarily have to be the specialist in everything to make those recommendations and let alone the changes that can come out of them.
1: Absolutely. So. And again, it's it seems to be benefiting all parties. So it's it's making more habitat for native species, whether that's a plant or an animal, it's making humans healthier and happier. So right. hashtag winning.
0: <laughs> nice. And so when it comes to the types of species you go after, I mean, are you looking at lepidoptera that are generally specialists on a food source, at least in their caterpillar phase? Or are you kind of whatever fits the kinds of questions you're trying to ask? I mean, where do you start to look at the species you in particular are interested in?
1: Yeah, so it kind of depends what what the scope of the research is. And and I have kind of different flavors on that that your audience may be excited about. Some of them have to do with the Endangered Species Act. Okay. So that's working with US Fish and Wildlife. Um they've got, you know, so many species they're trying to evaluate whether they need to be listed as endangered or threatened. Um those species tend to be more specialized at least in the past. Uh be, as a result becoming a, and specialization is related to rareness or or a decrease in abundance sometimes um however there is more and more circumstances where more generalists are also experiencing severe declines and so now now how do we think about that um yeah and so those are the kind of things so i work in both specialist and generalist meaning and we're defining that that's always a tricky definition <laughs> sure but <laughs> <laughs> defining that is the number of of species of hosts that a, a larva feeds on uh, a caterpillar of a of a butterfly feeds on um usually you would say a specialist is somewhere in 10 10 or under species oh, wow. of plants um but you know there's there's lots of debate so right. much debate about yeah. what a specialist versus a generalist is i mean there's a distribution there.
0: Yeah. I find every time I try to communicate what I think is a simple story, I read like three papers by three different people and I'm like, oh God, I'm not touching mm, this for another year. Start. Right. Yeah. I need a lit review stat <laughs> kind of thing. And it, it's tough because you know, the outside of this, especially for someone like yourself that wants to do citizen science, get people involved is those nuances can be kind of difficult because where do you generalize? Where do you kind of make these things that can, you know, hopefully affect policy or just management styles i mean that's got to be a weird and sometimes frustrating but also sadistically exciting place to kind of be working in a lot of the time
1: what i like about it too is it it does you know what i love about working with community scientists is like they push me on this right um and and what i'm pulling back a little bit of the curtain on science and being like, Hey, actually, these are the the conversations we're having. Like, we don't know the answers, we have a process, you know, there is a process to science that we all mostly agree on, on how it works, (laughs) um, and what the expectations are. Uh, And that process is is what's important, Uh, you know, at different points of the iteration of that process, we might get different answers. But we're always willing to go back to the process when we feel like we haven't gotten the answers we need, um, and so that's that's good for for community science because because they'll ask sometimes questions where I'm like oh 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 dear we might have to go back to the process
0: <laughs> way back okay
1: <laughs> okay all right and and you know I, we have multiple I just uh, you know it's great having people like on publications with you who who aren't tra- trained in the traditional ways. And it's it's really helpful. They just have it bring a different perspective and a different way of thinking and it mm. can be really informative.
0: Yeah, I bet it's a nice sort of check on the process because a lot of things that you get into the mix of it and you're like, ah, oh, this is common knowledge, or yeah, this is just an assumption we've been, you know, moving forward with for so long. Yeah, yeah it's they can really highlight a lot of the gaps. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, back to back to the drawing
0: Oops. Um, but, you know, you're at the University of Arizona and, and arid lands always really fascinate me because it's so easy to kind of go, oh, it, they're either depauperate of a lot of the biodiversity or they're always on this knife edge. But then you start to think about it like, no, there's a lot of diversity in arid lands. And of course, the species that live in them are adapted to said conditions. But, yeah. you know, with the background of climate change and, and habitat alterations, would you say that like Lepidoptera operating in arid habitats, or sometimes on a, a finer wiggle room or a smaller amount of wiggle room, to like the amount of disturbance or chaos they can handle from one week to the next, kind of deal.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of hard to determine at this point. I think that's where the field is leaning. So yeah. I'm not going to fully commit to this answer Fair. because, yeah, I mean, yeah, forecasting is hard, as we all know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's that's sort of the thinking, and I think insects in particular, and this includes. Butterflies and moths, but um you know, they may be at the extreme right now of sort of their metabolic capacity, and certainly in terms of like uh, dealing with extreme heat, in terms of like regulating, you know, osmo regulation, water regulation, like they. It's hard being an insect and being in a dry place because you get desiccated. They're small. Like yeah, yeah. you know, you get desiccated really easy. I mean, plants can just hold their breath for a little bit while, longer. <laughs> insects can. I mean, insects do a pretty good job. Sure. Plants are exceptional yeah. at it when it gets really hot. <laughs>
0: That's I love that perspective. Holding breath. That's so good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I just close up those stomata. Yeah. And just be like, oh
0: It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so fun. See, again, these perspective changes, are they're refreshing because it gives me some new ammunition and moving different areas of conversation.
1: <laughs> You're like, I'm going to remember that. Yeah, I will, I will.
0: Interview. I will quote you, but I will remember
1: it. <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect. Nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, again, another area where I think sweeping generalizations are tough, but, you know, in the media today, it's insect decline. And I'm so happy to see that getting attention. Obviously, it kind of comes down to insects that impact our lives a little bit more everything's being affected but obviously we care about what affects us but are lepidoptera part of this i mean is it something that like on the same level as the hymenoptera all the bees and stuff that everyone wants to care about is it across the board are they victims of the same kind of decline we're seeing in other clades of insects
1: i think broadly speaking yes um you're gonna have the uh, bright spots in that based on location, um, or clade. So certain insects, certain butterflies or moths might be a little bit more robust to these changes and, you know, based on evolutionary circumstance, but, um, in general, yes, I will say that I think butterflies are better. We have better data associated Mm. with them than moths and moths are just more diverse they're like little zombies who only come out at night. You have to be a vampire to want to study them.
0: <laughs> Shout out to all my bat and uh, salamander friends too. <laughs> Fellow vampire <laughs> yeah, zombies. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there there's tax of stuff that happens. Like yeah. People, yeah, mm-hmm. um, no, the, the moth and butterfly people kind of tease each other a lot because we good. have very different. Sort of ways of collecting.
0: Sure. I can only imagine how different that can be sometimes.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. So, I would say in general, yes, that you're seeing declines writ large in, in butterfly abundance um, across species. We haven't, I don't think, gotten into a really, um, I don't think we're kissing extinction in a lot of species. Sure. Yes. That it's the trajectory starts continues then that is a possibility i mean broadly speaking insects have done pretty well during mass extinctions a hmm. bit uh, large
0: yeah
1: um that doesn't mean that they but they have a lot of species so that doesn't mean that a lot of things don't go extinct also i think more importantly is that they insects themselves are snacks for a lot of other things um i often refer to ca- caterpillars as hot dogs with legs
0: mm, delicious <laughs> <laughs>
1: Or eggs with legs, if I'm feeling... Ooh.
0: <laughs> I think some listeners might eat a caterpillar before they eat a hot dog, knowing what's in a hot dog, or not knowing what's in a hot dog, but I like that analogy.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, they're feeding a lot of birds, a lot of mammals, a lot of herps. Right. Um, and amphibians. And so, you know, if they start to decline to in abundance, insects decline in abundance, then, you you know, those, those animals that have to eat a whole pile of them are also going to eat, decline in abundance. So... I think that's a bigger concern in a lot of ways for me
0: sure sure i mean it's the same reason i do what i do is like these things lower on the food chain really do set the foundation of so much energy transfer in the system that we'd be really smart to pay more attention to them
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and try to make the, the the make sure they're sort of accommodated in management plans and right moving forward
0: And so what excited me most to talk to you today about is this consideration of them and thinking about them in terms of management and and oases. And, you know, one of the big things that kind of hit me in recent years is, like I said before, you think of urban centers or historically we've thought myself being part of that as sort of that's the dead zone and the, the rural areas are great. But anymore today, the size of industrial agricultural plantations and spraying like sometimes the rural areas are even worse, if not on par. Uh, in in sort of their dead zone and so when we think about butterflies in the system and what we can do it really excites me to think of like the garden or the built environment doing better than it has before or having a hand in it because so much of stewardship comes from being involved in this sort of stuff and that's where people can make a huge impact so let's let's dive into a little bit more of that in terms of your research. Yeah sure so
1: I think you're, you're you're referring probably most recently to the um did a publication that showed that botanical gardens can be yeah. local hot spots for for butterfly biodiversity uh at least in across several cities in the in the desert southwest of the united states um and that was sort of exciting because we we think of botanical gardens as being great places for you know people to learn more about plants and right. and you know maybe learn more about the native plants that that uh you know characterize their particular city or, or region. Um, but, you know, there's growing sort of recognition among the wildlife community that botanic gardens actually are also great places for lots of animals to hang out in. Uh, cause there, there's lots of great plants and, you know, there, there's lots of water resources, right. uh, especially. Yeah. And so, so, you know, birds, lizards, small mammals, um, And insects, uh, you know, I think, you know, certainly my thinking has changed, too, in regards to, oh, yeah, insects are really small. (laughs) Uh, They can, they don't, they don't need a lot of, you know, yes, of course, like insect diversity um, in a lot of wild areas is is incredible, um, especially as you change in elevation and things like that. But urban centers, especially when water usage is high, could also be great habitats um, with, with. For insects and and then the things that eat insects.
0: Yeah, I can imagine too, especially in in an urban area in a drier or hotter area, those oases might become a little bit more impactful. Yeah. In the big picture.
1: Yeah. I mean I can certainly speak to Tucson, which used to have, you know, running water running
0: in town. <laughs> yeah.
1: But it doesn't anymore because of, of land use change and water usage change. And so so now those you know, the botanic gardens and and other places that have more water inputs are becoming places that that insects aggregate to and birds too. Like yeah. And, yeah. Things that fly probably have a little bit easier time finding them.
0: And so in terms of how you start to tease this apart, even to look for an effect, let alone interpret it, I mean, is it is you go out into the city, look in areas that don't. Qualify as botanical gardens, which is most of them, and then go to botanical gardens and kind of compare the list. I mean, that sounds so much fun.
1: (laughs) It was super fun. And I didn't actually do it, but this was community scientists who reported what they were seeing in different quadrants around the city. Um, It turns out lots of people report insects in their garden, Hmm. butterflies in this case. Uh yeah, and there's lots of schools doing work with, with this, you know, like um, different web platforms like iNaturalist or the one I run eBut- or co-run eButterfly. So yeah, there's lots of different ways that people are sort of engaging with the natural world and then talking about it or reporting it. Yeah. And then that data can be, you know, we did some fancy things, um, semi-fancy things to make sure that like, you know, controlling for the size of potato gardens, if you plop that size, of 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 land and in city like how many butterfly species would you expect to see and then does the botanical garden differ from what you see on average in that multiple distributions of those like little plots of lands the Mm. size of botanical so we made a distribution that way and then compared where the botanical garden fell on that distribution
0: really fun yeah and i love this community aspect again especially when you're leveraging people that are just kind of doing it anyway let alone having to send out the call for specific types of volunteers and my curiosity and in, in, as a scientist goes to like how good is that data to work with is it a lot of work to get it into usable shape but then i start to think like well the people that are doing this stuff that are paying attention and taking the extra time out of their life to report these things might take better data than people that you know are my, my, my first year graduate students possibly <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> No offense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no offense. No offense. Everybody has to be learning. No, I mean, entomology in particular, this is true for botany too, I think. there's oh, uh, yeah. it's a long history of, of um, paraprofessionals, community sciences, whatever we want to call them, um, contributing to our knowledge. Uh, it's certainly been true in taxonomy for a really long time. And this is just seemingly an extension of that in sort of uh, monitoring or, sur- or biomonitoring or surveying. Um, and then the tech helps a lot too, Yeah, I have to admit, like, like you're giving people like mistakes on lat long are not because you're not doing a and it's all collected by your smartphone. You're mm. not entering it yourself and transposing numbers, which I'm sure you've never done.
0: Um, oh, no, never, <laughs> <laughs> never ended up in <laughs> Russia somehow. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, forgotten that negative sign, those yeah. sorts of things. Um. And then you know, with cameras now too, you have like pictures of things, um, and we get back to butterflies have beautiful wings. Uh, those are primarily, in a lot of instances, used for identification. Um, I'll be honest; like you're not. There's some species where mistakes are more common. Sure, but there's also some species in insect collections where mistakes are more common. So I, I don't. It's just you have to be aware of those things and and sort of <laughs> think about what taxa you include and don't include in your analysis. Um, Yeah. And where you think those mistakes might be. But, you know, I would love a world where we could, you know, train and send out thousands of people to do really structured surveys on, on insects, but it's, I just don't think it's going to happen.
0: Yeah. I'm with you. And I think you made a good point there is I've made a ton of mistakes. All of my scientist friends have made a ton of mistakes. Like, there's biases and issues in all data sets so let's not act like it's just the public making oopsies
1: (laughs) yeah and you know it is sort of like as you think about developing these web platforms to click i mean there's a lot of time and and i know the iNaturalist group has done this ebird does this we do this like there's so much time spent just being like okay how do we make this as transparent as possible so we can figure out where the mistakes are
0: right yeah
1: right um, cause it's not like they're not going to happen. They will happen. But how do we then figure out where they are? And then, you know, what is the QA, QC process with, with making sure that, um, you know, moving, you know, the evaluation of our changes worked those sorts of things. So, so it's tricky. Yeah. But it's not intractable. Right. Um, yeah. It just and I'm becomes... not sure it changes what we determine. <laughs> sure. Either. Also right. yeah
0: you're not working on like well is it 0.04 or 0.05? <laughs> yeah. No and and that's a good point too is it's like it almost becomes management it's it's planning it's QA QCing it's it's helping people do better and and that's really what it comes down to is you wouldn't have the time to do all that training and you you know it's very thankful that there are citizens that are out there that are caring enough to do this so let's encourage it but You know, when you think of the results and what that interpretation tells you, when you look at a city like Tucson and you look outside of botanical gardens and then you go to the botanical garden, which Tucson Botanical Garden is beautiful, uh, go visit, how stark are the differences? I mean, how much of a difference do you really see in butterfly diversity?
1: Oh, like I think it's it's pretty amazing. So I think I'm trying to remember the number for Tucson Botanical Garden. It was like 85% of all butterfly species seen in the tucson metro area are in that spot are seen in that spot it's it's like it's pretty amazing that such a a relatively small amount of space in the middle of town in an urban area seems to be a great place for a little oasis for for our butterfly friends now you know And then what happens if we start replicating that or um, thinking about corridors outside of that so that Mm. they can fly, you know, safely to other populations and sort of like increase in abundance. And those are kind of the next steps that are really exciting to think about. Um, Sort of continuing those features out into people's yards or parks or those sorts of things.
0: What I love too is that like, you're not working across thousands of acres. You're you're working across something that could replicate, a, you know, a modest sized plot of land that someone could own. And as you mentioned earlier, insects being small and having relatively fast generation times, small areas can add up really quickly to make a massive impact. And that is something I always want to see driven home. Here is like even if you have a few hanging pots on a balcony on the back porch of your apartment, like put something out there because something is better than nothing.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, again, it comes back to like your health will also get better, too. Right. <laughs> right. So <laughs> there's really no reason not yeah. to uh, for lots of reasons. And and, you know, what I try to encourage, too, is like, you know, what I love about this way of doing is like you can just start doing creating community around plant cutting. So I always encourage people like, hey, this whatever a puncha a cactus is, is really popular with the bees. Uh, we have a Hawaiian punch variety, which has this hmm. great red flower, which is fabulous. And so then you you whack off a pad and you give it out to your friends. And then not only are they excited, they got a free plant that they can put in their garden, but then you know the local bees are kind of like hopscotching down the block to, to some new habitat and have some new snacks out there.
0: Right, right. That's so cool too. Yeah, the, the sharing of plants, because I mean, talk about getting people hyped, uh, especially if it's free or very cheap, which they usually are. Um, but, you know, just this little bit goes a long way sort of mentality can get someone excited about really any aspect of this process. If it's, you know, if Lepidopter aren't your thing, well, hey, maybe that prickly pear will be.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or those little thrips that are in the...
0: <laughs> no, not the thrips. No, they they have a place too. <laughs> I always remind 82. people. They I mean... They pollinate cycads. They're not all bad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Was I reading? I think I was reading about thrips maybe partly pollinating cacao too.
0: Do a what? That's new.
1: Yeah, I know. I should look that paper up. But yeah, I remember that for a plant insight class where I was cool. like, "Oh boy,
0: new for me." I should say that might not be new data. Yeah, no, no, I have no idea. Like News that, that,
1: that c- cacao is yeah. not fine. But I'll try to pull that up and send that to you.
0: That's yeah. my default whenever like my grandmother says something. What's what's this function? What's it's good for? It's not good for any. I'm like, eh, it's probably a pollinator or something. <laughs> We don't know. You'll never know. <laughs> <Come> <laughs> I
1: mean, yeah, pollination's hard to study. It's just yeah,
0: like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff can be too, though. It's a, it's ephemeral, a it, you know, the lepidopter can fly. So what's there one day isn't the next. And, and that's the other exciting part, too, is I've seen it myself. The small little pieces that you do in suburbia or, or an urban area, almost are these beacons. I mean, the Oasis sort of meant uh metaphor there is, is really true. It'll draw things in from a wide area, especially if there's not much else going on. So you may see things you've never seen before. And then it's a matter of like, well, I wonder if I'll get to see that again, that excitement kind of builds over time.
1: Absolutely. And it's sort of like a naturalized Pokemon go, right? Um,
0: yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it's like, will I, like will I see this one again today. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, 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 uh. Twitcher culture, I believe is what it's called. Yeah.
0: You know, when it first came out, I heard a lot of people railing on it. But you know what? It's getting a lot of people outside. And, and, you know, especially if they're well-planned these areas, the gamification can kind of spill over. And I think that lends to a lot of where the INAT success becomes eBird success. It's like... Eventually some a, a few of them, maybe not all of them, will realize, oh, I can do this with birds. I can do this with butterflies. Like so talk Absolutely. to us more about this e-butterfly, because that one, that one was fairly new until I started looking at your research.
1: Yeah, no, this is a collaborative effort. Um, it was started by Max Larviee up at the Space for Life in Montreal. And I've just been sort of involved as a co-creator at different points. And what it is is it's much very much like for folks out there who e-bird, it's a checklist-based system. That is really targeted uh people who who love to go out and look at all the butterflies in a particular location and list them, right? Yeah. Um, and so and then, you know, that data as a checklist data can be used for 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 more things from an ecological perspective, from a science perspective, hmm. than a data like you would get from INAT, um, which is um uh, incidental observations is sort of the way I think about them. They're not connected. So, so if I go on inat at and I see three different things, I, they're not connected together in mm. a, in a checklist. Okay. Um, so important to have it as a checklist format is you have presence pseudo absences instead of presence only data, like you would have for incidental observation. So your I naturalist data is, is presence only. You don't know if something's not there. You just know if something isn't there. Mm. Um, Wow, with checklist data, you know what's there and what's not there. It's in the weeds, but it means sure. that mathematically, you can do different things with the data um, and have a little bit more flexibility to think about different analyses. Yeah, um, which is is useful for for, you know the the broader, more questions is always good because it turns out that you know scientists are really good at asking more
0: questions. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the thing. But I'm happy you went into the weeds because this is important stuff to know. And I, I'm I'm guessing the little bit of dabbling I've done on the wildlife side of things is that it's it's much harder to say something that isn't there. It's like you said that pseudo absence. Whereas plants, if you don't see it growing there and you're there at the right time of year then it, it's probably not there unless it's one of those weird super dormant for years kinds of things so i can imagine this really affects how or at least the scope of inference you can make mathematically as you hinted at uh moving forward in in looking at things from a wildlife perspective
1: yeah there's there's a lot of time and energy spent on this in in wildlife land because it turns out animals are not, not as cooperative as plants are <laughs> they're just a little bit more flighty about lots yeah, of things a um yeah. And especially when they're small animals or, yeah. you know, or spend half of their life as a caterpillar or egg and only. Yeah. So, so it is, it is important. Um, it's again, probably an evolved, a really quickly evolving part of what we do. Um, Cause we've never had this much data mm. um, before. And there's a lot of things that, you know, we'd love to have structured surveys where every community scientist ran out there and did exactly the same thing. And was exactly the same at their identification capacity and comparing across locations would be a lot easier, but sure. that's not the world we live in. And, yeah. and yeah. And so we're just trying to, you know, figure it out given the, 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 the sort of parameter space we're in.
0: Yeah. But I mean, look at you. You're a scientist. You're a working academic. You have a publication record that is impressive and and worthy of writing home about. It obviously works to go the citizen science route. It is obviously working to find people that aren't necessarily these cloned, perfectly trained scientists to get these kinds of answers. And the cool thing is, is the impact and, and the input is so much more meaningful because a lot of other people outside of the academic world have had a hand in it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, like, you know, I grew up in a small rural community where it was like everyone was sort of pulled into all sorts of activities because you needed bodies, right? And <laughs> right. It, I feel like the scope of climate change is so large that we need all the bodies we can get to help think about this and help mm. move this this forward. Um, and community science is a great way to do that. And I, I have to, like, I've learned so much from my community scientists and our interactions. And, and I'm so appreciative of you know, what they bring to the table and like how they push me to think in new and different ways. Um, yeah. So it's, I find it very rewarding also professionally, Mm -hmm. like, and I really enjoy, you know, kind of closing the gaps. There's part of community scientists, like we're really good at like, you know, building web platforms for community science to participate in maybe doing training materials. It's like can you know, we can do better with connecting about how we're using the data. I bet there's many people who do community science who don't know how that data is used and what it's mm. being applied to in sort of management and conservation conservation. Um, and we can do better there. And then my most recent, the recent botanical garden we talked about involved two community scientists. And so, you know, they were there with the process of writing the publication, revising mm. the publication, nice. like, you know, like seeing like all the sort of... <laughs> um, <laughs> Fine detail that goes into what we do, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I can see it in your eyes. Right. No one else can right now, but I can see it in your eyes. The fine details, all right. <laughs> Reviewer number two. <laughs> yeah.
1: Minutia is the word I want to use. There you but... go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been there. It's but you know, and and uh, you know, some of the community scientists really get into that, and then other ones are just like, I want to be out in the field and just collecting yeah. more bugs bio- or photographing more bugs. I get that. Yeah, absolutely. Been there.
0: Go forth, gather thy data.
1: <laughs> exactly. Nice. If, if somebody would pay me to, click, to you know, click data all the time, I would do yeah. it. But it's, it's a lot more of the processing and the interpretation and then the application.
0: Sure. But in terms of the sort of the outcomes and the perspective that all of this work gives you, especially when you're working with members of the community where you have that back and forth a lot more often than a lot of scientists get to, You know, you are dabbling in some pretty heavy hitting stuff, climate change, potential endangered species stuff, uh, insect decline. You know, there's a lot of reasons to go home and put the covers over your head and never get out of bed in the morning. But what I really like to do is show people that things can be good. We can succeed in certain places. And so in this work, do you feel like you still have hope? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of key messages that can come out of this and ways we can do better. But do you see a perspective or do you have a perspective that's a little more nuanced now about how quickly things can turn around if we can convince X, Y, and Z?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, certainly I, I have to get up every morning and feed the cats. That's <laughs> something that. <laughs>
0: there you go. <laughs> that's motivation number one.
1: <laughs> I mean, there's there's no hiding under the bed nah. or the pillow, you know, crying alligator tears with them around. Yeah. Um, uh But no, I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, we've seen big catastrophes on earth before. We've seen them in the fossil record. We've seen them even more recently in in different locations and, you know, animals are resilient and resistant as are plants. Um, You know, it is a big, scary problem with big, scary consequences. However, you know, it's also very motivating um to see when it works and and i'll give you an example of that so so um there's U.S. fish and wildlife does a really good job of of you know implementing the endangered species Act, bringing lots of people to the table uh people who normally and interests who normally wouldn't collaborate with each other mm. um and <laughs> i'm going to point to the monarch butterfly in particular right here but you could go to the sage grouse um is another example um but like getting people who are passionate about making the world a better place it, it, who normally like you, you sat next to Monsanto people and, mm. uh, transportation people and at, at these Monarch meetings and, and everybody's willing to sort of move forward in that direction and make impactful changes in terms of how they manage and implement whatever they're doing to make the, you know, the lives of, you know, a crazy little butterfly <laughs> who does migrate a long way. I'll give yeah. it that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, a, you know, a better chance at, at at making the go of it, and that's that's great. That's really really um, heartening to see, and yeah. Nice. And I, I think moving forward, you're going to see. You know, it's not going to be easy for certainly, but sure. most of course, of human history has not been easy. I hate to bring it to people. Yeah.
0: In many ways, this is the easiest time we've ever had.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, I feel very yeah. very blessed to be yeah. right now instead of in the plague. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Even with the plague we just had, <laughs> I yeah, hear you. It's
1: got nothing on smallpox or bubonic sure. plague or, yeah. Yeah. So
0: Well, and I think too, you know, you look at the nuances of ecology, the nuances of science in general, and, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all story, and the, the responses are not one-size-fits-all strategies, and that's another important thing is you're sitting at the table with all these different people representing all of these different interests, but every interest can have its own role to play. It's not necessarily the same role. It may not get you, you know, the next person sitting by them excited, but we all kind of have to bite this off in our own special palatable way.
1: Absolutely. And that, that goes for like, you know, everyday people who are like, just even going back to like creating a better insect friendly space in your small little patio garden. Right? Yeah. So it's like whatever you can do, try to do something. Um, and I think you know those do have impacts, and it you know as a multiplicative effect of of what's you know of impacting the the species in in question. Yeah. So you yeah. know, and yeah. that's really cool, and it's it's great, and and we come back to insects actually do do pretty well. It's it's you know other parts of the biosphere I'm actually more worried about.
0: True. Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely things that uh, warrant a more urgency, I guess, than a weird non-value sort of way <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: yeah so so yeah but um yeah, but it's great to see people's interest in insects sure. lately i've i've gotten more and more requests random phone calls i don't know do you get random phone calls
0: <laughs> if you saw the random form to contact <laughs> i get on a weekly basis you might cry um so <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah no
1: it's been it's been great everybody's enthusiasm uh, for wanting to learn more about insects and that's good though it was it's great. Uh, you know, historically, we've been mostly about how to kill insects. Right. Right. Um, right. But now people are much more excited about how they can make, you know, their local environment a little bit better place for insects.
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's it's hard because everyone's like, what's your metric for success? What's uh, I need a metric to measure this? I'm like, I'm just getting more emails about, yeah, how to do that or calls about how to do that rather than Ew, what does this kill it? You know, I think there's, it's not always going to be tangible, but there are sort of like a, there's that sense of a tide changing a little bit. And every time I talk to a new student, it's like, oh, you guys are going to be fine. I may not understand a word you're saying, but I think you're going to be okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, and not that it won't be difficult. And there'll sure. be really cha- big challenges ahead that are going to create a lot of thoughtful, collaborative efforts and money. But, right. There you go. But there are worse places. Yeah. I, th- I feel pretty optimistic that, you know, things, things will sort out.
0: That's encouraging. And so with that in mind, if people listening want to help out, get involved in your citizen science, or really anyone's citizen science, especially as it relates to butterflies, first of all, where do they go to find out more about your research? And then second of all, where do they go to look for good citizen science opportunities, especially as it relates to butterflies?
1: Yeah, so there's a variety of places they can go depending on what they want to do. Um, I, I suggest if you want to learn more about what I I do, just Google my name, because it's it's kind of unique. Um, <laughs> the last name in particular, uh, P-R-U-D-I-C. Uh, and you should be able to come to my website there. If, um, I'm in the middle of redoing it. Yes, yeah, talk about New Year's resolutions that I haven't nice. quite done. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there's there's lots of, look <laughs> at the gist just yeah, by doing yeah. the Google search. Um, and then in terms of getting involved in citizen science, there's something called Starter. Which has sort of an uh, assortment of community science programs that anybody can become engaged with. In terms of biodiversity science, the community science, uh, uh, you know, if you're just beginning, I tend to think send people to iNaturalist just because it's got a lot of really great features that um, integrate with your your smartphone. If that's something you have, um, it's really easy to do. It's sort of an easy onboarding process. Um, and it's a really fun community. They have like meetups or depending on where you are and like um, a lot of botanical gardens use that community science just in terms of their nature walks and sort of like this added value to a nature walk or or the zoos do it too. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a good starting point. If you have a particular taxa you're in love with, um, birds come to mind, right? You know, the birders. Yeah,
0: uh, passionate group. <laughs>
1: passion group um ebird is sort of the 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 big community science program that has been so successful with that community and beyond um and then if you're into to, but, to butterflies we have ebutterfly like we talked about um i believe there is a dragonfly there is a moth photography group wow. um you know i think the best advice is sort of if you have a particular taxa choose that taxon name and then in your Google search, put "community" or "citizen science" with that and you should be good to go. Perfect. Um, for plants, I'm a really big fa- fan of uh, Nature's Notebook with the National Phenology Network, uh, where you're looking at phenological or seasonal changes, uh, when plants are flowering, when they're fruiting, because um, that has impact um, on my world, of course, with insects, but. But it's also a really sort of fun way. And you go back to a site over and over again. So you really get to kind of more intimately know that site and the the, the sort of natural seasonal changes that happen there.
0: Excellent. Yeah. I, I think uh, listeners should stay tuned because someone from Nature's Notebook might be on this podcast in a couple of weeks. Awesome. <laughs> hint, hint. So glad to hear that. Yeah thank you (laughs) no no worries no worries (laughs) um
1: but but yeah i mean it's just like you know i i think i get teased by the plant people occasionally because i will sometimes only do a top cut with um specimens (laughs) i won't dig up the roots
0: i'm with you i don't like killing them (laughs) it's like you got enough herbarium specimens i'll just take a picture and maybe get you a top snatch and we'll be good
1: (laughs) but you know you know i have a little, little haircut among friends but um yeah, but so, so you know, I know the botanical identification, and this is true with other insects and young butterflies. Kind of
0: but you got to start somewhere. And yeah, I think a lot of these AI fostered experiences can really get you over that learning curve a lot quicker than historically when you just had, you know, very, very tedious descriptions.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I want to do, I mean, an iNaturalist has a pretty good... Um, Uh, Machine learning enabled patient feature. um, eBird has uh, Merl, are there Merlin? Is that the one that just like the song ID? Sounds right. Yeah, you could do Shazam for bird songs.
0: Who'd have thought we'd get there? But we're here.
1: here and it does a pretty good job excellent so so yeah that those are all fun ways to help you learn and then of course you know coupling that with a field guide i still think books are important and Agreed. just being able to flip back and forth and things like that it's just a little bit easier of an interface than, yeah then scrolling through things
0: well books books don't have batteries that die unless you're doing it on a kindle of course but you know i'm old school like that <laughs> yeah yeah <I> know. <laughs> Well, Dr. Purdick, um, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, give us these recs, and and thank you most importantly for the work that you're doing and getting the community involved in it. We really appreciate it.
1: Oh, Matt, thanks for this interview. It's been a pleasure, and I'm so glad you guys are, are doing what you're doing.
0: Thank you so much. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and, and keep up the amazing work. Will do. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers all right fantastic stuff and a message of hope something we desperately need in the world of biodiversity i thank dr prudyk for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us and as always you can find all of the relevant links for the things we talked about in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com podcast there's reason for hope just get out there and try to make a change even if it's a small change even if that's on your porch or balcony try it. Next time you think you want to send out a snarky tweet or a post that doesn't go anywhere and only serves to divide us, instead, plant a native plant or plant something, anything. Turn that energy into productivity, not anger. That's just my rant for now. So, rants aside, I do have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Emily, who signed up at the producer credit level over at Patreon. With the help of Emily and all of my other patrons... I can bring you this show each and every week for free. I literally could not be doing it without them. So thank you, Emily. And of course, thank you to all of the patrons that have signed up to support this podcast to date. I couldn't be doing it without them. You can also support the show by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. And all of those links are found over at indefensiveplants.com podcast as well. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.